Good morning, church. Like Scott said, thank you guys for making the effort to tune in today. Hopefully we are praying uh, that this won't be the reality a whole lot longer for us as a church or as our city, our state, the world. Uh, We are eager to see, hopefully by God's common grace of medicine, this virus uh, taken under control so that we don't have to do things like this anymore. But we appreciate your patience, especially when announcements like this come out uh, sort of uh, randomly as we get information and, and on kind of short notice, we just appreciate your willingness to, uh, to protect one another and to make sure that we can um, keep each other safe as best we can, as best we can. So uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. You can head that way in your Bible if you have a tablet with you, your cell phone, whatever you'd like to use, feel free. I mean, obviously, today you're in the comfort of your own home, so you can really do what you want. Uh, but I think it's worth seeing this for yourself. We're really just going to look at two major passages of Scripture today. And I believe that uh, taking the time to read them on your own and, and maybe even sticking a piece of paper or something in that part of your Bible so that you can come back and think about it later this week uh, is going to be helpful to you, is going to be meaningful. Um, we are using the beginning of this year, 2021, to talk through uh, the new vision that we have as a church. And we, we want to be known as a church, we want to be known for and good at the things that the Bible says that Christians are supposed to be known for And good at. If you've been a believer very long, you've probably at least been aware of other churches, if not a part of them, who have been good at or proficient at or been known for things that the Bible might communicate as secondary or or maybe even tertiary, maybe even not really important at all. And so what we want to do is keep our eyes on the prize. We want to have a very clear target and objective for where we're going and how we move that direction so that we can go together and so that when there is friction, when there is conflict, when there are moments where the world calls our character or our practices into question, we know that we stand on God's word. Not our own opinions, not the ideas of somebody else somewhere, but the timeless truths of scripture is is what we want to be the base of all that we do. So in order to do that, we are reforging. That's why we're calling this series Reforged, is we are interested in God doing some work on us. And that implies change, change in us individually as well as change in who we are as a body. And so beginning in October of last year, we talked through this vision initially. We only took a handful of weeks, about three weeks to do that. And we talked in terms of kind of who we are corporately and some of the programs or practices that we might be using as a, as a congregation. My objective in this series through January and part of February of this year is to take these principles and try to apply them to your life individually, specifically to you, your context, where you live, the people around you. And so we started where our vision begins. The banner behind me says it's all about Jesus. The reason that we have that up every single week is that's the focal point for us. That is the center of who we are as individuals. It's the center of who we are as a congregation. If we lose sight of Jesus, or even if we allow one of the other six principles to work its way all the way into the middle, to become primary and most important, we will lose our balance. We will become uh, disproportionate and eventually ineffective. And, And frankly, if we do that long enough, we may even be damaging to the witness and testimony of Christ in our community. And so we want to be careful that Jesus is the center. He's our motivation. And with him in the middle then the other six principles that come after it's all about Jesus, they're outcomes. We can say each of them kind of this way. If it's all about Jesus, then we belong, then we become, then we behold. And so we've taken the last three weeks to talk about those words, which are more so the internal facing principles of ministry for us as a church. An easy way to think about this is that if, we, if it's all about Jesus, then we belong to him and each other. If it's all about Jesus, then we become like him. Not like each other, like him. If it's all about Jesus, then we want to behold him high and lifted up. And if we do those things, those things will apply for us 
while we are next to and across from other disciples. That's an easy way to think about. When do these things show up? Well, they come into play when we are around other Christians. Beginning today, we're going to move into the last three principles, which themselves form an external-facing ring. And this ring is where disciples who have been formed by Jesus actually meet the world. It's where the rubber of our reality, our Christian reality, meets the world who is lost, who's dying, who needs Jesus. And beginning with this principle, this ring, these three words that start with S, they will apply primarily when we are across from and next to people who do not follow Jesus. And so this is where we begin thinking about what are our mannerisms like? How do we represent ourselves? What do we bring up in conversation? How do we live outside of the different gathering points that we have as a local church? And I just want to say quickly, even though we're moving out of that inner ring, which you know, those, those ideas kind of focus in on who Jesus is, it's where we're formed as disciples, this outer ring is also made up of outcomes. These three things also don't exist and don't work if it's not all about Jesus. And so we come today to outcome number four, that if it's all about Jesus, then we share the gospel explicitly. And we're going to talk about that word explicitly. Why is that important? Why do we have to say it that way? Why is it not good enough to just say we share the gospel? So I asked you to go to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 10. And I'd like to read to you what Paul wrote to the church in Rome regarding their responsibility and the role that they play in how other people become Christians or disciples or followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says this, beginning in verse 11 of Romans chapter 10. He says, For the scripture says that everyone who believes in him, him being Christ, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's great news. That's just a quick introduction to how anybody anywhere can follow Jesus. All they have to do is hear about him, and then their hearts cry out, and they go, yes, this is going to be the thing that I will build my life on. Jesus will become the person whose voice I submit to in every circumstance. Him alone. Only him. Now, we get to verse 14, and it starts to become about our responsibility as believers. So hear this. Paul says, how then will they call on him, how will they call on Jesus, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Jesus, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So then, faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. So you and I, we are people who know grace. We have had an encounter with grace that's very personal in our lives. That's what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. We don't just know about grace. We've not just heard about mercy or read a lot of theology books that have increased our knowledge and understanding of the facts of our faith. We have that faith ourselves personally because we have met a personal God in the person Jesus. This is the only thing that all of us have in common. It's the only thing that binds everybody in this local church together. As people who know grace, then, we care about, we are interested in introducing that grace, that person, Jesus, to the people in our lives. We want our friends and our family to have an encounter with Jesus where they know grace personally. I've never met a person in my life who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus who would say, yes, I hope I'm the last person Jesus ever saves. Nobody's ever said that before, right? We think that what we have is such good news that it should go out to the ends of the earth. And so for that reason, what I'm not going to do today in our limited time together is I'm not going to try to convince you that the gospel is worth sharing. You know that. It was shared with you. You received it, and it has changed your life fully. 
I think you probably believe that wholeheartedly, even if maybe you're not doing anything about it right now. And you already want the people who you love to know Jesus. I know you do. You pray for them. You ask me to pray for them and your elders and your life group and your life group leaders to pray for them. So I know that they're on your heart. What Paul said to the church in Rome is that there's one way for that to actually happen. To go from just simply wishing or hoping or wanting people around you to become Christians to actually seeing that happen, which is possible even though it may feel impossible to you, and the way that that happens is by hearing about Jesus from me and from you. Us together, not just me on this stage, but us in our lives, around the people who we know. The word that your Bible translates as preaching in verse 14 of what we just read really means to herald or to proclaim. You could think of this in modern terms as announcing. Paul is not describing just what happens on a stage like this in a room of several hundred people when he says preaching. He's talking about making an announcement to people who do not have the news that you have to share. They haven't received it yet, and you're there to let them know something that should probably change the way that they live their lives once they find out about it from you. He's asking, how are they to hear without someone announcing? And it's rhetorical, because they won't. They can't hear if no one announces. You and I are expected to be those announcers of Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 17, this is the foundation, this is the bedrock of the principle that we need to share the gospel. It helps us understand why we need to do it this way. Why is it important to God that we be speaking the gospel? Does God just want us to prove that we're willing to be humiliated for him? I don't think so. I think he understands that there's a process in play here. And the same way that you met Jesus is the way that the people around you are going to meet him probably through your own words. And so everywhere we go throughout the week, you and I, anybody that we meet, grocery store, restaurant, picking our kids up from school, whatever, our everyday lives, we are surrounded by people who are going through life looking for meaning, looking for a key that unlocks purpose in their lives, that gives them some hope about their future. And we have that key. And not only do we have that key ourselves, we know where they can find that key. And so we announce that. That's all we're doing. When we talk about sharing the gospel, when you hear the word evangelize, which can be a very daunting word in some settings, what we're discussing doing is letting people know how they can be alive. What can unlock all these things that they've been carrying and that have been worrying them and their pain and their suffering so that they can be full of purpose and they can have a destiny in eternity. But that's scary, isn't it? If it wasn't scary, I think we would do it all the time. We like the parts of Christianity that aren't scary. It's not scary to feed somebody who's hungry. It feels really good. It's not scary to give water to someone who's thirsty or to drop off a a box full of coats at the homeless shelter. And those are good things. Those are things that we ought to do. Next week, we'll be digging into why we do those things and how Christians do those things differently from people who don't know Christ. But those are a little bit easier. My heart doesn't start to race when I know that I'm bringing a, a bunch of cans of food to drop off at the food kitchen. What does make me nervous is the idea of introducing Jesus to a stranger. Sometimes I think we disqualify ourselves because it seems so important. It's such a, a big gospel that we feel that we're sharing that we're, we're worried we might mess it up. There's going to be some cracks in our presentation. We're, the, the, the atheist that works next to us is going to see the chink in our armor and he's going to go right for the jugular and it's going to be over. We're going to lose our witness. The irony of that is we might not have a witness in the first place if we're not willing to open our mouths. I think that sometimes we have been taught from a stage like this one potentially that we have to memorize 17 Bible verses or we have to have an, an alliterated rhyming presentation to make. Otherwise, we can't share the gospel. And I think that those bad ideas plus our misunderstanding of how the Bible presents the story of Jesus have served to dehumanize 
the gospel. And I think that we don't know how to share the gospel like people. I think we only know how to share the gospel like presenters or coaches or robots. And so really what I want to do today, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in John chapter 4. And what I hope will happen is that you'll see that, that the gospel that we share is very human because we are very human. We don't de-emphasize Jesus, but the way that we get to Jesus is through our common shared experiences. And so that's what I want to do. I want to rehumanize our understanding of the gospel. So you can move back in your Bible from uh, Romans chapter 10 to John chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 27 today. We just simply don't have time to do the whole chapter. While you head that way, let me give you a little review of what's gone on before we get to the verses that we're going to read. Uh, in John 4, Jesus meets a woman in a place called Samaria. And Samaria is a, uh, it's sort of like a county, or you could think of it as a municipality, pardon me, a municipality in Alaska. Uh, and it's, it's a place Jesus wasn't really supposed to go in the sense that nobody would have expected it. And probably for a long time, people didn't even believe that this happened because it was so far from from Jesus' world to go into Samaria. But he goes to Samaria. Uh, he and his disciples stop at a well that's outside of a small town. And he sends them away to go and get food for everybody. So it's just Jesus by himself in the desert next to a well. And a woman comes out of the town that the well is a part of. And she comes to draw water. It's about noon, the Bible says. So it's lunchtime. And while she's drawing water, Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. He asks her, can I have a little bit of the water that you just pulled out of this well? And in that conversation, Jesus tells this woman her own life story, to which she responds, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she's right. He's a lot more than that. Jesus then turns the conversation. He uses the, the analogy of water. They're standing by a well. And he says, I can actually give you water so that you'll never be thirsty again. You won't have to walk here anymore. And I think at first she takes him literally, but then eventually she understands he's talking in spiritual terms. And so they, they have this short kind of theological debate about worship and where it can happen and who should and shouldn't do it. And at the end of this debate, so interesting, right before we were going to read, the woman changes the subject. She throws her shield up and she says, well, we don't have to agree because a Messiah is coming eventually. And when he gets here, he'll fix all this for us. So don't, you know, I don't need to hear any more about what you think. You're a Jewish man. You've got your opinions. You're obviously at least a rabbi. You might be a prophet. I'm just here to get water. I need to get back to town. I, yeah, just let's worry about it once the Messiah arrives. And I see her in my mind. She picks up the jar. She starts to turn and leave. And Jesus looks at her and he says, that's me. I'm the Messiah. Well, now she's stuck. The thing that she used to deflect, he just took responsibility for. So she has to take him seriously because she just introduced the idea of a Messiah as her own argument. And so he looks at her and he says, I've come and I'm here. And in that moment, she's changed. Jesus reveals himself to be her savior. She responds to that. And then we're going to start reading in verse 27. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said to her, what do you seek? Or to him, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, and she went away into town, and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then those people went out of the town, and they were coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, so we cut away for a second. Jesus has a little lesson for his disciples here. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Well, look, I tell you, lift your eyes up and see that the fields are white for harvest now, today. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. This passage can seem a little bit cryptic and even out of context, until you remember that Jesus has just shared himself with a woman who has gone into town to share her new, brand new, minutes old, her brand new faith with all of the people who are on their way back. Jesus knows this, and he's trying to quickly catch his disciples up to what's happening at the supernatural level before all these brand new people with all these questions show up, and maybe the disciples will put their feet in their mouth like they're used to doing and, and send them all away. He's trying to get them ready. Like, there's already one who's out. She's beginning to reap. She's bringing them. You guys are going to see the harvest, so Open your eyes, please. Instead of getting stuck on that I was talking to a woman, which is not important, think about what we're here to do. Who, what are we doing? What's my goal? What's my objective? Okay, so he's, he has this quick kind of like face-to-face powwow with his disciples. And then in verse 39, we find out that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, which was simply this. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked Jesus to stay with them. And he did. He stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. And then those believers said to the woman who had met Jesus at the well, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So as soon as Jesus' disciples show up, the woman gets out of there. She's like gonzo. And she leaves her, she leaves the water jar, which I think is so interesting because it implies two things. It implies first that she's got to go where she's going quickly and she can't carry the, this multi-gallon ceramic jar on her head and do what she needs to do. And it also implies that she plans to be back for her water jar. And so she heads into the city. And it's interesting because as we read the story, we sort of get it in textbook form where it's just all the facts. But if you think about living this, there's a period of time where we don't know what she's going to do. We don't actually hear her confess with her mouth, yes, Lord, you are Savior. And even when she gets back to the city initially, she is asking a question which could just be rhetorical to get people to come back with her to the well, or it could be an indication that she isn't sure if she believes yet. But we find out by the end of the story that she does believe and that she sees in Christ not only her own Savior, but a Savior who can save anybody. A Messiah, truly the fulfillment of the thing that she has obviously been waiting for. And she wants to share him with the people that she knows. And so she goes back to her city in order to give testimony. That's really the idea here. And when we talk about sharing the gospel, the primary way that you and I share the gospel is via our own testimony. We tell our own story. There are times and places and people who need more facts or more history than that, and they will come around and we'll find a way to walk with them and let them know the truth. But most of the time, the way that we introduce Jesus to people is we start with our own story. Because if you think about this chapter, in John chapter 4, Jesus shares himself. And it would be great to be able to use Jesus as our example for how to share the gospel. But Jesus makes a claim that we can't make. I don't get to go to uh, my daughter's school and while I'm in the pickup line, roll the window down and talk to the PE teacher and say, hey, uh, I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for, so you're saved now. That's crazy. That would do way more damage than good for everybody involved. I'm not Jesus. My example has to be this woman who has just received Jesus. The woman at the well who, if if you read the beginning of this chapter, like I said, we don't have time today, but you ought to read it later today if you have a few minutes on your own. We find out that the position that she's in because of her own choices is, is really low, probably absolutely at the bottom of her cultural hierarchy. And she then is our example. She's the person that we're supposed to model our evangelism after. I think so. 
her testimony is, has multifaceted, and, and there's a personal element and there is a general element. And as we look at this again, I want to remind you, my goal is to rehumanize the process here. As we look to her as an example for how we share the gospel, just remember, she's a person, and you are a person, and she's imperfect, and you are imperfect, and so you can connect with this plan that she uses. I don't think it's a plan in her mind, but it, it becomes a model for our method. First, looking at what's personal, look back at verse 29. She says to the people in the city, she goes and finds them. It's the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. They're probably taking naps. She's probably knocking on their windows and doors to wake them up. And she says this, come with me and see a man who told me all I ever did. And then 10 verses later, John mentions that again. So we know that this is really a quote from her. This is exactly what she said to these people. The culture that this woman lived in is a shame on you culture. You do anything wrong and everybody around you is going to be looking in on your life and commenting on how bad you are because of the mistakes that you've made. Almost all of the social norms of her day were designed to keep people apart who were different from one another. Yet when she encounters Jesus and he initiates conversation with her at the well in Samaria, Jesus shows that he doesn't care about the racial barrier because as a Jew, he's willing to speak to a Samaritan whom he would have naturally looked down upon based on the way that he was raised. He also shows that he doesn't really care about the gender barrier because men and women didn't speak in public, yet he speaks to her directly. And even more than that, he is a rabbi and she has been divorced so many times that she doesn't leave the house except when she knows that she's not going to bump into anybody else because she doesn't want to see anybody who knows her or any of the men that she's been with in the past. She's ashamed. Jesus reaches down through those barriers to her personally. And that's her testimony. That's why her testimony is powerful because personally to her, what Jesus did that was so different from everybody else she had ever met is he spoke to her about herself, about her own life, her own baggage, things that you and I are afraid to bring up. She was too, but when Jesus speaks to us about him, it builds intimacy, right? When he looks into our hearts and our souls, isn't that a moment where we feel fully known and we realize, okay, I don't have to hide anything from God because he already knows it all as maybe painful as it is to have to admit that he's always known it all and all the hiding that I've been trying to do has been totally ineffective, there's a sense of security in the God of the universe really knowing you, fully knowing you. And so what does she say? She says, he spoke to me about me, about my life. And she doesn't know a lot about her new faith. This woman doesn't realize at this point, because Jesus didn't tell her yet, that he's going to die for her. She doesn't realize that that has to happen. That's what's part of what's so amazing about this story is that she believes before he's already paid the price. She doesn't understand the trials that he's going to go through, the persecution that he will face once he makes his way back to Jerusalem, which is where he's headed at this point in his ministry. And I think this is why she's such a great example to us as we share, because all she has experienced is grace. That's it. 100% of her experience has been the God of the universe showing her mercy, and she doesn't have to study or understand any theology before she shares that gospel, because she has met a man who has transformed her with mercy. And that is our testimony, too. If we are followers of Jesus, that is 100% of the operative action that Jesus took in our life as he forgave us, fully. He set us free. He said we never had to be defined by or known for all the things that we have done wrong. And that, that would never be true. That would always be true for us. We would never go back to a place where that becomes our name tag again. It's just all of our sin and wickedness. But that we can be forgiven 
and made right. And so that's what happened to her. She is forgiven, and she is willing to talk about that. And so if you're taking notes, if we're going to talk about how we share the gospel, then you can write this down, that sharing the gospel starts with your encounter with grace. That's where you should begin. If you have no idea how to tell anybody about Jesus at all, start with your own story. The, the most educated atheist in the world cannot disqualify your story. And not that we're trying to be aggressive or abrasive or even defensive in the way that we speak, but that should give you some relief that this woman is a good model for us because all she does is say, this, I, I met him and he knew me and this is what happened. And now I'm different. And I don't even know if I can explain why. I don't have to. I'm not God. I didn't do the work. I experienced the work. I received the gift. And I want to tell you about how that changed my life. Not only is her revelation personal, but it's also general. There's a common truth for everyone involved, too. Look back at verse 42. The people are speaking to her. and I think they're kind of confessing a little bit. They probably feel a little bit guilty. They say, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you hear the implication? It's implied that at some point the woman said that Jesus was not only her own gracious Savior, but that he was also the Savior of the world, and, and that that's the truth for everyone that she shared. But the people in verse 42, I think, are kind of insulting her a little bit. It's almost as if they're saying, you said he was the Savior of the world, but we didn't really believe you. Now we've met him, and go figure, you were right. He really is. Wow. Remember that this woman, because of her life choices, she is not highly respected in her community. Okay, she's not the, the Christian NFL quarterback who just won the Super Bowl who gives a shout out to Jesus because he threw a lot of touchdowns, okay? She's not famous. People don't like her. her. Her role in the community is for people who are having a bad day to take it out on her, pretty much, is how her life goes. And she's the definition of what we mean when we say incredible. She is uncredible. She is not a credible person at all. But what she says is so sensational, it's so winsome, it appeals to the deepest need in the heart of the people around her that they have to go and see for themselves. And she doesn't just try to slip Jesus into conversation casually. She just tells him the truth. She's like, look, I care about you and you need this. So I'm not here to comment on why you need it. You know why you need it. But this is the bottom line is you need to go. In some sense, I think she's saying a version of this. Look, you all have problems. I have problems. You probably think that my problems are the worst and largest out of any of us. Well, I met a man who knew it all. And when I spoke to him, he offered me eternal life, and he'll be your savior too, but you just got to go meet him. Go see him. He's at the well. They're eating lunch. There's a sense of urgency probably because she thinks that as soon as the disciples are done eating, they're going to move on. They're going to go where they're headed because Samaria is not a place you go on purpose as a Jew. It's on the way to somewhere else. And so she's pushing these people. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. I want this for you. My life has been changed. Don't you want yours to be changed? I have all these big problems and I'm better. If you have smaller and easier problems than me, then why wouldn't you go? There's less cost to pay for you. It's not a better reason to hide your sin. It's a reason to just get it over with. Go and talk to him. He'll take it all. He'll, he'll deal with you kindly. And you'll notice that she doesn't say Jesus did this for me and he's right for me, but he might not be right for you. And maybe you just need more time. This is so challenging for me when, when Christians, and I'll tell you that I've been guilty of this before, when Christians talk about that they have a friend, they have a relative, and they want to share their faith with them and they say, I just, I'm not sure if it's time yet. I just, they might need some more time to get used to the idea. What does that really mean? What, is it, what qualifies you to be ready to meet Jesus? It's your own sin. Are you saying the people around you are not bad enough? 
Do they need more time to, to run out all the line that God has given them until finally it pulls tight and a crisis hits? What if you could introduce them to Jesus before the next crisis enters their life so that they could navigate it with his grace and mercy instead of waiting for them to be demolished and tattered by the pain around them and then hoping to sort of jump into the middle of that and offer the solution? If you were my friend and I knew that you knew Jesus and you chose not to tell me about him until after I'd gone through crisis, I'd forgive you once I met Jesus because that's what Christians do, but I'd be a little mad about that, I think. So we might need to rethink our order of operations a little bit here. This woman is a great example of just going for it and just saying, look, I don't have to be obnoxious with you. Our relationship doesn't have to end if you reject this, but I need you to know this is important. Like if, if your friend's house was on fire and they were not putting that fire out, eventually you would try to get into that house and do that for them. If, they were, if their sink was leaking and it was flooding the bottom floor of their home every day, you wouldn't just put your boots on when you came over and ignore it so that you could maintain the friendship. You'd be like, look, I, I don't know a lot, but I have a cell phone, so let's get on YouTube and let's fix the pipes, or I'll hire somebody else to do it for you, but can we please, can we solve this problem that is damaging every area of your life? And sin is worse than that. The rebellion in a person's life and in their heart is more damaging than that. It is leading them places where they could make decisions that are really hard to reverse. And if we know today that we have the key today, then maybe today is the right day to reach out and say, look, I love you and I just need you to know my whole life is built on this. And I can't hide it from you anymore. And I'm not gonna ignore it when I'm around you so that we don't have friction in our relationship. I care enough to tell you the truth and here's the truth. So she's establishing an objective fact. She's moving the conversation away from just herself and she's communicating that Jesus is not just her savior. He's not just a nice thing that worked out for her but he's the savior of the world. And so sharing the gospel starts with your encounter with grace and then it moves the focus to Jesus. And that's it. That's 100% of the content of sharing the gospel. You start with yourself and then you move us to Christ just as quickly as you can. And then let him speak. Let him, let him introduce himself. Let him do the work. He is not dead. He is not dormant. He's not sleeping. He's ready. Your responsibility is to just get people to the well. Just try to get him as close as you can so that they can see him and meet him. And like the Samaritan woman church, if I can encourage you, we don't have to understand everything about Jesus. We don't actually have to have a single verse of the Bible memorized before we can tell people about Jesus. It would be great for us to do that. It would be a fabulous, fabulous use of your own time and brain space to put scripture to memory. It would only serve you. It would only be valuable. But don't let that be an excuse. And I think that's what we do instead as we go, well, ah, if I had... If just had, maybe just John 3.16, I'll work on that. And then we don't work on it. And then we justify not sharing our faith because we kind of self-disqualify. When Jesus never said, you have to have my scripture and my word memorized before you can tell people about me. You have had an experience and an encounter with grace and that is sufficient for you to share. So we know what she shared. And it's all you and I are called to share as well. She starts with a personal truth, her own encounter with grace. She shares the common reality of Jesus as Messiah and Savior of all. Now I want to zoom in on how she shares these truths. What's her method? Three things that we can learn from her method that will help us to rehumanize how we share the gospel. First, she has organic authenticity. She's not preaching like we think of preaching. She's not polished. She isn't professional. She certainly isn't funny at all. She's not witty. She isn't very cool in her presentation because it's not a presentation. She goes back to town and she sees people on the street that she knows and what does she say to them? This is what happened to me. That's it. This is what happened to me. I met a man. He told me all about myself, and now I'll never be the same. And church, this is where this story begins to snag in my life a little bit. This is a little conviction coming for me here. 
at face value, her example is reassuring to me. It's comforting. Because as a disciple, what do I have to do to share the gospel? I just have to tell people what happened to me, right? All I have to do is say, Jesus made this change in my life. He did this for me. Great, and I'm better now. That's simpler, and honestly, it's a little more concrete than a lot of what Christians think evangelism is, and it's a relief to hear. But the snag is that if it's all about Jesus for us, then the only way that we can not share the gospel is by hiding our Christianity. Hiding our Christianity is, even if it feels unconscious by now for you and I, if we've done it so long, it just feels automatic, it's a decision that we make. And it's a decision that we make because we feel the need to mitigate what we think will be the cost of sharing the gospel with people around us. Social cost, the the financial or professional cost, the familial cost. And so we choose those things over being honest about who we really are because of God's grace. And if I fail to share my faith, to share the gospel with my friends in this city, then I am hiding who I am. If it's all about Jesus, then Jesus is the way that I overcome my issues, right? Right? If it's all about Jesus, then Jesus is the way that I solve my problems. He's the way that I figure out what my hopes and dreams are going to be. He is how I decide what matters to me. And in every normal friendship that you have, you open up over time. You start letting the other person in. As you get closer to them, you share more of your life. You share how you overcome your issues. You share how you get past your problems. You share the foundation that leads to your hopes and your dreams. You talk about what you're thinking about, what decisions are coming up for you. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, the only way your friends cannot know about that is for you to choose to short-circuit the normal path of a normal relationship. How ironic is this, that in an attempt to protect a friendship, we actually totally erode the foundation of that friendship by hiding who we really are. Do you think that the people in your life who are not believers would prefer that you lie to them to make them happy? Because that's the other choice, is to hide it and to pull back from it and to disguise it and to try really hard to not bring it up unless it's absolutely necessary and and maybe it's their responsibility to come and ask you. Church, you don't have to be a weirdo about this, okay? But you have the chance to simply share how you and your family navigate parenting. How do you navigate your marriage? How do you navigate your money in your life? How do you navigate crisis? How have you navigated this pandemic? How do you navigate the last election? These are things that people have a lot to say about. And you have an opportunity to communicate how the God of the universe totally and holistically changed the way that you navigated things that probably the people around you are walking through right now as well. Or you can hide it. You can put that light under a basket. And then what's going to happen? Eventually, I think it'll go out. I'm not saying you lose your faith, but you'll become a person who's a lot more like your friends than your friends becoming like you because you know Christ and because you shine his light. The woman does not hide. The woman used to hide. That's what she did when she was hopeless. That's what her life looked like before she met Jesus. She built her whole schedule around never seeing anybody and never having to confront her reality. But once she meets Jesus, she gains an organic authenticity where she shares as an overflow out of who she is and what Jesus has done for her. All she told her neighbors is, here's what's been going on in my life, and our method is also like that. Now I want to show you her candid simplicity. A major difference between the Samaritan woman and you and I is that we know way too much. 
<laughs> this woman has the bare minimum operating knowledge that it is required to share your faith in Jesus because all she's done is meet Jesus. But us, we know too much. We know how Christians are supposed to behave. We know what Christians are supposed to believe. Some of us even think that we know how all Christians everywhere should vote. And what we do is we spend our relational equity shouting about secondary things. Or we try to get people to live a certain way. We try to introduce them to the path and the system before they ever know Christ. We try to convince them to be a Christian, and they're not even sure if they know that a Christ is real yet. But what did she say? She said, come and see a man. Look at Jesus. Behold him. This is part of why beholding is so core to who we are as a church. It's not just because God's going to get jealous and throw lightning bolts on us if we don't worship enough or the right way. It's because the best thing we can get the people around us to do is to lift their eyes up off of themselves and look to Christ once in a while. That's why Jesus said one chapter before this, one encounter before he meets this woman, he explains to Nicodemus, like the serpent on the pole in Exodus, just look to me and healing will happen. Just move your eyes to me. Move the eyes of your soul and your life to me and I will regenerate you. I'll take care of the work that has to get done. But what do we do? We spend time debating what the gospel is or is not. We, we freak out. Did I say enough? Did, did I not say enough? Did I say too much? But what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus. Just Jesus. That's it. That's why it's all about him. Have you ever heard a more simple invitation in your life than come and see? Our faith our walk, our testimony, our lives are really only about Jesus. But what do we spend our time introducing people to? Not the savior of sinners, but the lifestyle of Christians. This is a, a specific advantage that we have over other world faiths. Because we can know the author and perfecter of our faith. If you were to spend time reading the Buddha or Muhammad or L. Ron Hubbard or Joseph Smith, what they're going to introduce you to is a plan. They're going to introduce you to a system. And they're going to point away from themselves and tell you that if you can just walk this path, eventually you'll find enlightenment, you'll find salvation, you'll find whatever you're looking for. Only Jesus points to himself. What did Jesus say in John 14? That he is the way. He himself is the way that we get to God. There is no other way. And so he is who we want to introduce people to. The Christian faith in its entirety is just Jesus. And so the Samaritan woman says it. She says, come and meet the man himself. Just like you are with the clothes that you're wearing now in the middle of your normal day, come and see him. I know where you can find him and I'll lead you there myself. So let's not be like every other false faith on the planet trying to lead people to the way of Christian living. Let's be candid and let's keep it simple. And let's focus on Jesus. You can say to anybody in your life, go and see Jesus. Go meet him. Go talk to him. Go ask him questions. Go explore who he is. Get to know him. And you will be sharing all the hope that anybody can have. So the woman has organic authenticity. She has candid simplicity. And she has miraculous faith. And this is where we have to rehumanize our understanding of the gospel, church. Without faith, without believing that a miracle is possible, we're going to share in the most half-hearted, weak way possible. It's going to feel like we're just sort of shuffling sideways into the conversation to quickly pull a Bible verse out and drop it and see how everybody reacts. And then we're going to shuffle away when they take that really poorly. If we don't believe that Jesus can save the people in our lives who we love, then we have some internal work to do. We need our own faith to be built, and probably the path to regrowing that miraculous faith is remembering what Jesus did for us. The Samaritan woman believed that if she would just tell her story, something big would happen in her life. It was worth the risk to her. She had lived a life of stigma so far. Because of who she was or was not married to, people immediately judged her character and value when they saw her in town. 
She had even developed a schedule that kept her out of the public eye. She'd been remarried so many times that she didn't even bother with a formal title for her current live-in boyfriend. And if all she wanted to do, church, if all she wanted to do was coexist with her neighbors, she knew how to do that. She didn't need Jesus to teach her. She could walk the path of least resistance on her own. She had been groomed and taught to do that well. What she understood was that she could hide her scars and wounds so that she could get home in one piece from running her errands each day. She understood what the world thought of her. She understood and had resigned herself to living on the bottom rung of society where everybody else thought that she belonged. And then she met Jesus. And he was gentle with her, but he told her the truth. Probably for the first time in her life, somebody looked her in the eye and told her the truth. He looked into her soul. He looked almost through her, and he described what he saw under all the layers of self-defense and dishonesty. And as he explained how well he knew her, how he could really see her in a way that she had never been seen by any of her six lovers or by her neighbors or by her city or even by the disciples of Jesus, even the people closest to Jesus cannot see this woman the way that Jesus does. They're worried about, oh, should Jesus be talking to her? Jesus, did she bug you? Do we need to take care of her, get rid of her for you? Only the Christ, only God himself looks at her and sees her and she believes. She believes that she's finally found what she's looking for. And as she unloads the weight of her soul, all of her hopes, all of her fears and dreams, she unloads them off of her failed relationships off of her ability to survive until tomorrow and onto this man, Jesus. She really gives him all of herself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. She sees him. And she can tell that he is more than strong enough to bear that burden. And for the first time in her life, her soul is able to stand all the way up. There's nothing crushing her. There's nothing above her. And she is free because she has been found in Christ. She came alive. And as he saw her, she looked back and she saw him for who he was. Moments after trying every petty religious argument she could think of to navigate and dodge and negotiate with this man, she realizes that she has just lived through a miracle. She's just experienced contact with the God of the universe. And as her soul meets his and she's made clean and brought to life, all the darkness in her barely scratches the surface of the depths of his mercy. And so she doesn't just think he can save me, she thinks He can save all of us. This is the one that we've been waiting for. He can do it, and faith is born in her because she has lived a miracle, and so she rejects the social norms that honestly have only ever taken dignity from her anyway. And she goes home, and she tells everybody that she meets that they can be like her, alive and free forever. She stops hiding her problems, she stops hiding her mistakes and her pain, and she allows those things to tell the story of a healer. By being honest about what's wrong with her, she magnifies what is right with God. And she makes much of him in her own pain, in her own weakness, and she's free to do it because she belongs to him. She's safe. A soul that is free, a soul that is alive, can tell that nothing can touch it. And it takes years and years, decades even, of living in the world to get beaten back down into the state that a lot of us have settled for. Remember, church, let your faith be miraculous because you've lived a miracle. The last and most critical part of our method brings us back to the central principle. We need faith like the Samaritan woman that believes a miracle is possible every time we share the gospel. Because why? Because it's all about Jesus. Because it isn't about me. It's not about numbers. It's not about baptisms. Those things are good and fine, but it's about the Christ. And so that's what I'm sharing. My only goal is that your soul make contact with the soul of the God of the universe. That's what I want to happen. 
And it can happen in your living room or on a bicycle or at Starbucks or in the line while you're waiting to pick your kid up from school. It can happen anywhere. If it can happen at a well in the desert, it can happen anywhere. We keep our eyes on Jesus and we never forget the miracle of our own salvation. And that is why we're motivated to share. Because the story of the woman at the well is our story too. So church, I want to admonish you to never forget what Jesus did for you. It starts and ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's his grace, his mercy, his gospel. That's our only hope. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the technology to be able to be connected this morning to one another. I pray, God, that uh, as we finish our time together singing, that we would sing like people who believe that we've been saved from something. Every time I turn on the news and I see miners who've been dug out of a mine shaft or a person who was saved from a shark attack or people who were hauled out of a burning building, God, I, I see people who understand the value of their life and realize how much they owe the person who has saved them. And, and I don't think we think about that very much. I don't think we really understand. We don't spend a lot of time remembering who we were and where we were headed without you, God. So please help us see that miracle and would you motivate us? Would you make us people that are less about conversion and that are more about just trying to bring people back with us to the well, God? And then let you do it. Let you do it. If nobody ever confesses Christ in this room ever again, God, if that's your will, I don't think it is. But if it is, then so be it. But would we be faithful instead? Would we be faithful regardless of whatever results we do or don't get? And would you lead us to be people who speak the truth, our own story, and then you? It's the only story that we have to tell God, and it's the only one that's going to change anybody's life. So we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.